How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. I'm one of your co-hosts, Gary Horn. Hey, I'm co-host Justin Bishop. And I'm the third wheel writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Ah, some good old r and It gives one time to think, reassess, plan, and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on whatever pops into that crazy perfectionist brain of our subject today, James Cameron in this part eight of our series titled the man of tomorrow try millions of dollars todd millions <laughs> well, i didn't i didn't want to I, <laughs> I was i wasn't positive on the millions of dollars but i was pretty sure about the hundreds of thousands million well hundreds of thousands leads up to millions but yes. yeah yeah it does <laughs> yeah i think didn't we look it up on one of the episodes he's like in the 700 range somewhere in well there. he's just talking about what he spent during his hiatus which uh oh, yeah, i mean yeah. just those just those submersible dives remember the one that he did on titanic was four million dollars oh i thought it was i thought he was saying it was 40k each dive and yeah but the, like the, the whole dives the whole expedition on that particular one uh, okay was four million dollars okay. uh, they did 12 <laughs> dives during that trip you should listen to that episode we did it was really good oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that that's uh that doesn't feel very humble <laughs> we're allowed to Let's say, I, I, I'm not going to come on our podcast and say our pod, podcast sucks. Don't listen to it. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a good that's point. Not, that's not I know you don't like to self-promote, Gary, but that is not a way to make people <laughs> listen to your podcast. You're right. <laughs> I, I do have to be better about that and stop. Gary V says I have to stop caring what other people think. It doesn't yeah. matter. You're going to die. And you're not at the end going to think about what this dickhead from high school thought about you posting about the shit you like. Well, when you're dead, you're not thinking about anything. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, I guess inching <laughs> towards death or something. So anyway, well, we're all inching towards death, uh, much like we're inching towards the end of this James Cameron series. I nice segue. But first we got to. Yeah. First, we got to get those big 12 inches in there. <laughs> <laughs> what? The what? <laughs> This is the title of this what? episode is James Cameron's 12-year intermission. Oh, I'm oh, okay. okay. inching towards it, but we got 12 inches, right? James uh, <laughs> Cameron. Oh, Jim. Uh, this, the, now this episode is called James Cameron's 12 inches. <laughs> oh, let's, well, let's, let's, uh, let's, not, let's not, you know, uh, dance around it. Let's just call it James, Jim Cameron's big old dick. <laughs> <laughs> he, he actually named it the Titanic. <laughs> uh, you well. think he tells whoever's down there to never let go 
I'll never let you go. Uh, well, anybody who approached this podcast from a purely educational, uh, <laughs> sorry, I think, they're, they're we, weeded out. I think we've weeded out. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we apologize. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, so after the massive undertaking of filming Titanic, James Cameron was ready for a little bit of a change. Uh, you know, he had, Obviously, he's going to get a lot of offers for other movies, everything from the uh, the Planet of the Apes remake, the one that Tim Burton ended up doing, to naturally Terminator 3, True Lies 2. Uh, but he had kind of had enough of Hollywood for a while. Uh, pr- probably had something, a little something to do with how difficult it was to actually get Titanic made. Mm. But also, you know, James Cameron, as we know, was an explorer at heart. Even in his filmmaking, he relished going into uncharted places, doing things that no one had ever done before. And after the historic wins for Titanic at the Oscars, he had the means and the time to really explore the way that he wanted to. He had, as uh, as James Cameron himself put it, his fuck you money. Uh, he said, I can kind of step away for a while. My career is not going to go anywhere. I can do all the cool stuff that I've always wanted to do. Um, in one interview I read around this time, he said, I just assumed that the next time I had a good, I- a good enough idea to want to take me away from my family, uh, my new family at the time for up to a year that I'd be happy to do it. I know I'm not the kind of person who can parallel process several different things. I'm a serial processor. I work on this and when it's done, I work on something else. So if you have enough self-knowledge to know that there is going to be a sacrifice somewhere else, I just didn't need to anymore. I certainly didn't need to do it financially. And I'd always given myself the goal of getting to a certain point where I could just put this on pause and explore a lot of other things that I might have wanted to do uh, as careers before I went into filmmaking. Uh, He said, I think there's a sense in Hollywood and in filmmaking in general, that it's almost a self-defining reality that those people only reference the interior of their particular bubble and nothing outside of it is significant. I do not see the world that way. Hmm. Well, he kind of figured he would take, you know, two, maybe three year hiatus from Hollywood to go on some more deep ocean expeditions, uh, all while, you know, continuing to produce and developing some projects that he might work on, you know, a little further on down the road. That hiatus, however, ended up being a, a little bit longer than he expected. So after Titanic, it would be another 12 years before another James Cameron narrative film premiered in theaters. So for this episode of Cinema Shock, we're going to be, be doing something that's a little bit different than anything we've ever done before on the show, really. Uh, instead of focusing on the production of a single film, uh, we're going to do a bit of exploring ourselves, and we're going to take a look at just exactly what the hell James Cameron was doing for that 12-year stretch between films. We had not originally planned on doing this when we were planning this series Uh, but as we started doing our research we realized that a lot of the stuff he was up to during what seemed to be like him just disappearing from Hollywood uh, has some significant impact on what he's going to do uh, with Avatar and beyond so we didn't feel like we could just kind of skip over it you know which is what we originally thought we were going to (laughs) do so before we get into it though guys I got a story about James Cameron that I want to tell. All right. Yeah, so, ready. you know, over the course of this series, we've talked a lot. We've made a lot of jokes about James Cameron's behavior on the set of films. Uh, he has a sometimes deserved reputation as a, a difficult guy to work for. You know, he's intense, he's, he's cocky, uh, and he's a genius. And when you're all of those things, sometimes you can be a little bit difficult. Uh, stories from James Cameron sets often make him seem like, uh, I mean, I don't know another word other than, an asshole, you know, 
Uh, but I don't think James Cameron's really an asshole. I think I think he can get really intense, and and I think that can affect his behavior. But I think deep down he's not like a a, a total like scumbag. You know, I think he's just dead set on getting his art made, and he's not going to let anything get in the way of that. And if he may have in the past gone about let's say relaying his feelings to his cast and crew in a way that's not you know, very nice, well, at least as you know, he gets into his twilight year. You start reading interviews with him later on. He has realized and fully admitted that that was the wrong way for him to behave. So he, you know, has grown as a person, which, you know, is all that any of us could, could ask to do. But he's also not like that guy 100% of the time. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't have any friends. And James Cameron has a lot of friends. Uh, and a lot of his friends talk about him as if he's two different people, this like Jekyll and Hyde persona. Uh, his friends will refer to him as uh, Jim the guy versus the guy he becomes on set, Jim the director. His intense onset alter ego, uh, in fact, was often referred to as Midge, M-I-J, which is Jim spelled backwards. So like a bizarro version of Jim, you know. <laughs> nice. Clever. Yeah. Uh, one of those friends, Arnold Schwarzenegger, says, uh, quote, it's wild. He literally becomes a different person talking about when he's on set. And then John Bruno, who we've, we've brought up quite a few times in this series, uh, he's the special effects supervisor who worked with Cameron since the 80s. He said, uh, I can judge him by the way he answers questions, the way he's talking to people. It's just a tone. He'll be sharp with somebody. If he turns around and says, this is fucked, then that's not the day to ask him something. So his friends kind of know how to dance around this Jim, this Midge character, right? Uh, before you before you tell that story, Justin, just because I don't know a better place this would fit in, I actually had something at the beginning just to throw in there a quote from him uh, about this very thing. Because some one of the interviews, and forgive me, I don't remember where it was, it was that the guy asked him about a nickname he has uh, called Iron Jim. He <laughs> said in the interview, he says, uh, uh, he says, that's actually not my nickname. It's the name of an article that came out. Or something. It's actually <laughs> the, the name of his penis. Yeah, it's actually. <laughs> um, but the the interviewer asked him, "Do you recognize that you are kind of that? Do you think that you have to be such a tough guy to make films like you make them?" And he said, "Here, he said, all directors are. A director's job is to make something happen, and it doesn't happen by itself. So you wheedle, you cajole, you flatter people, you tell them what needs to be done, and if you don't bring a passion and intensity to it, you shouldn't be doing it. Also, by the way, you won't prevail." It's just that some directors are better at hiding it or they might be more patient than I am. But I think that's part of the territory. But, you know, with most of the types of the stuff I do, there's a lot of safety issues, too. Some of the stuff you saw at the end of Titanic, people can get hurt doing that. And so mm -hmm. things have to go a certain way. There's a certain precision that's required, procedural even. And it comes from the top. It's a very much an old style kind of tribal hierarchy on a film set. The director sets the pace, sets the tone. And I do challenge the crew to do the best work and be as safe as possible. But I think that gets misinterpreted uh, or sorry, misinterpreted as unnecessary harshness because people who aren't there and don't really understand what's going on. I've always had actors who want to come back and work with me over and over because they know that I'm going to push them to do their best work. He says in that same interview a lot about how even the ones that seem pissed off about it still tell the stories all the time about all the bullshit that they did. And he's like, he's like, don't don't misinterpret that. They're happy that they did it and they're proud of that work and they will yeah. eventually want to work with me again. I mean, we talked about that a little bit in our abyss episode, whereas like immediately after the abyss, you know, 
Ed Harris was telling stories where it sounded like he was in fucking Vietnam. Then you listen to him years later when he's being interviewed for the DVD and he softened a little bit on that. And he, and he recalls it as if it's one of the best, you know, film experiences that he he's had difficult for sure, but a, a very memorable experience that he's very proud of. Yeah. And I, and I like the point that he makes about like with Titanic that you, you have to be hard on there's, there's, any slight miscalculation in some of this shit. And if you're too nice, then somebody could die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, another one of his friends, uh, Guillermo del Toro says that when he's on set, Cameron has a laser like focus. And this is a quote from del Toro. And everyone knows what happens with lasers. So Jim, the guy, Jim, the guy, I think isn't a bad dude. You know, he's just an intense director uh, and del Toro has a, a a really great story to prove that Jim the guy is not a bad dude. So Del Toro and James Cameron are they're old friends. They met back in the early 1990s at a Fourth of July barbecue at Ron Perlman's house. Uh, Del Toro had just directed Perlman in his first film Kronos, and Cameron was there with Linda Hamilton, uh, who had starred in the TV show Beauty and the Beast alongside Ron Perlman back in the uh, back in the 80s. Mm. So Kronos, uh, Del Toro's movie, had cost $1.7 million to make, which was at the time one of the most expensive films to have ever been made in Mexico. So when they met at this barbecue, Cameron, uh, he walks up to Del Toro and he says, hey, I hear you and I make the most expensive movies in our respective countries. Uh, And uh, so when can I see yours? Well, a few months after that meeting, James Cameron became the first person in the U.S. to see Kronos projected on screen. Uh, Guillermo Navarro, who is Del Toro's longtime cinematographer, they still work together. Uh, He actually translated the film for Cameron as they watched it because the filmmakers had run out of money and didn't have anything left to pay for getting subtitles made for the film. So they're watching the whole movie with Guillermo Navarro translating it for for James Cameron. (laughs) Wow. Well, James Cameron loved Kronos. Uh, and he and Del Toro, they quickly became friends. They were they were kind of kindred spirits. Like they were both accomplished visual artists. Uh, if you've ever seen Del Toro's sketches, like it is absolutely, inc- he is absolutely oh, incredible. Yeah. Uh, they both often designed elements of their own films. Uh, Del Toro, like Cameron, had worked his way up on the technical side of filmmaking. He had learned makeup and special effects from uh, from Dick Smith, actually. I'm somewhat of a Dick Smith myself. (laughs) (laughs) But he had uh, Del Toro had also done pretty much every job on a film set from operating the boom mic to being an assistant director, just like James Cameron. He can pretty much do it all. Well, Del Toro was kind of broke after pouring all of his money into Kronos and he would end up staying in James Cameron's guest house in Malibu anytime that he was in, you know, the the L.A. area, uh, sometimes for months at a time. Uh, the two would, they, you know, they were like buddies. They would go laser disc shopping together. Uh, Del Toro says that like James Cameron, you know, he would buy like, Del Toro would buy like three laser discs. James Cameron would, would walk out with like a hundred of them. Cause you know, he's a millionaire and Del Toro's broke. Uh, they would, uh, you know, they'd order takeout and watch movies together. Uh, Del Toro would introduce all these like weird, you know, kind of obscure horror movies to James Cameron and stuff. They had movie night, you know, they would critique each other's rough cuts uh, when they were working on films. This is going on for years, you know. I feel like um, this is where the friendship montage. With yeah, that yeah. Song, like, about my best friend. It's weird that you say that because I was literally picturing in yeah. my mind like J- James Cameron and Del Toro on a couch, like with a bowl of popcorn in between them. Like, yeah, I think it's like at a, the screen. There's like a shot of them skipping side by side. And- 
they come out with matching t-shirts that like says best friend and it's pointing with him yeah (laughs) like or or they come out wearing the same outfit out of the dressing room and they don't realize it they're both like pointing ah you too (laughs) but yeah i mean that's what it was like it was like i I mean i would watch a sitcom about these two guys you know Uh, i think jim jim and guillermo you know hanging out uh they would but they would help each other out in filmmaking terms as well if they were uh, editing a film you know del toro's been in the editing suite for pretty much every james cameron movie since the early 90s like just not not entirely but you know he'd pop in cameron would be having trouble on a certain scene you know trying to get figure out what what works and del toro would give him suggestions and vice versa james cameron would do that for del toro's movies as well so they've got this great little buddy comedy thing going right but Mm -hmm. then Okay, let's say that's yeah, that's your movie. That's your buddy comedy. Third act, we get a little bit of a twist, right? Ooh. 1998, this is after Titanic comes out, uh, wins all kinds of you know stuff, makes all kinds of money. Del Toro's father was kidnapped in their hometown of Guadalajara, Mexico. Uh, kidnapping in Guadalajara is not uncommon, uh, but the reason it happened in this case is because uh, Del Toro had just made his second movie at this point. Mimic, released by Miramax. Uh, that movie cost about $30 million to make, uh, which was easily the most expensive thing that, that Del Toro had worked on. And that made everyone in his hometown of Guadalajara think that he was this like Hollywood high roller. You know, they thought he was just rolling in the dough. So they kidnapped his father and they demanded a ransom. As you do. The, yeah. The problem was Del Toro didn't have any money to pay. Uh, the kidnappers, they, they asked for a million dollars ransom, but Del Toro had once again, he'd sunk all of his money into this film and nobody else in his family or anyone could possibly afford to pay that kind of ransom. So, so a little time goes by, the kidnappers double the ransom. Jeez. And, and presumably they did this because they thought maybe Del Toro was holding back on them or something. They're like, oh, fuck this guy. He's not going to pay us. Now you have to pay two million. Uh, that's me. You know, speculating, but that's kind of what it seems like. Oh, well, this goes on. Tell me this story ends with James Cameron sending a robot army in, like a drone <laughs> army. Not quite. That would be a better story. Uh, <laughs> but this goes on for 72 days. The kidnappers have Del Toro's father for 72 days, a month and a half, basically. Or I'm sorry, two and a half months, basically. Uh, during this time, Del Toro and Cameron are in communication. Cameron is emailing him or calling him, kind of checking in on him regularly. Uh, seeing what he can do to help. He's helping him find uh, the right people for ransom negotiations. Uh, he would review the references from the negotiators, saying, like, you, seeing the you know, what they're telling Del Toro to do. He'd run it past James Cameron, get his advice on it. Uh, some sources say that Cameron loaned Del Toro the amount of the negotiator's salary. Others actually say that Cameron gave Del Toro the full $1 million to pay the kidnappers. Either way, James Cameron had a major hand in saving the life of Del Toro's father. He gave him a lot of money to help get his father back. Nice. And they got him back. Uh, they, they ended up getting him back. Uh, Del Toro would later say, uh, of all of my friends, Jim was the Gibraltar stone. It's easy to talk about the legend of the artistic dictator. Few people know Jim's other side. Wow. So after the nice. incident... Uh, Del Toro ended up moving his entire family back from Mexico to the United States, and he later paid Cameron back the money that he'd loaned, and the two remain close friends to this day. So, 
That's just one of the many adventures that James Cameron got into during his 12-year hiatus from directing. He's literally saved Guillermo del Toro's father's life. (laughs) So, So let's get into what else he did during that time. So the year after Titanic was released, James Cameron left the special effects company that he'd founded with Stan Winston back in 1993. When he founded Digital Domain, his goal was to influence the development of CGI use in movies, because remember, that wasn't really something that was being done much at the time. And then he hoped to use the advances made by the company to make his own movies better. Pretty much the same thing that George Lucas had done with Industrial Light and Magic. You know, Industrial Light and Magic was created to make George Lucas movies better. Uh, But it's still a business that has to be run like a business. Of course. And while Cameron was undoubtedly Digital Domain's biggest client, there was a point where his own personal creative path started to kind of diverge from the company's business plan. Uh, the board of Digital Domain had started to become concerned about conflicts of interest between Cameron, the CEO of Digital Domain, and Cameron, the film director. So as CEO, you know, Cameron should be pushing for the company's growth as a business, but as a filmmaker, he wanted to get the most CGI bang for his buck. So those two things don't really coexist very well. Mm. Well, Cameron couldn't exactly go make a movie and then ask other effects companies to bid on work for his movies. He kind of had to use digital domain, but digital domain was becoming increasingly corporatized. It was, you know, we mentioned this before, but it was backed by IBM. It was also backed at this point by Cox Communications, one of the biggest communications companies in in the country. Uh, And Cameron started to become frustrated with their aversion to taking risks. Well, the digital domain board also realized that the effects business was kind of a tough one with a very tight profit margin. Like uh, I think their profit margins were, their profits were about 5%, which is incredibly low. Really hard to make a lot of money when you're only pulling in 5% profits. Uh, Scott Ross, who was the company's president that Cameron had kind of put in charge, I think we mentioned him back when we talked about digital digital domain being founded. Uh, He wanted to expand the company into a full-fledged production company, kind of like what... um, like Pixar did, you know, it started as an effects company, kind of an R and D company working for a, well, for Steve jobs at the time, and then eventually turned it into its own studio. Mm. Uh, So that's what Scott Ross wanted to do with digital domain. He wanted it to be a production company, not just an effects house, but Cameron had already had Lightstorm, remember Uh, his own production company. And he didn't really want like another one. So all of this is kind of coming to a head at a board meeting in 1998 there. Ross is, is going over the details of this possible expansion. They're talking about taking this uh, IPO, you know, making it public, uh, which, you know, is going to make them all a lot of money. Uh, and then at this meeting, just before Ross makes the announcement, Cameron stands up. He's got a handwritten note. And he reads it to the board where he, he basically, the note is him giving his, he's thanking them for, you know, the years of work that he's done with them. And he's giving him, giving them his formal resignation as both CEO and chairman. Uh, and of course, Scott Ross, you know, is not happy about it, nor is the rest of the board because they're trying to go public with this company. And that's not going to look really good uh, to Wall Street when the founder leaves, you know. Uh, oh, and also Stan Winston, remember who had co-founded it with him. Uh, he also walked out with Cameron that day. He kind of <laughs> he kind of agreed. He didn't like the direction the company was going. So he walked out with him. So all the things that anybody on the street would have given a shit about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Digital Domain, uh, they, they survived without Cameron, uh, and just in case you were worried about them. Uh, in 2006, they were bought by a holdings group whose principals included Michael Bay and um, Dan Marino, for some reason. 
<laughs> he's looking to diversify his portfolio. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, although Cameron would not use them when it came time to create the effects for Avatar that same year in 2009, the year that Avatar came out, the company did actually receive its first Oscar nomination since Titanic for its work on David Fincher's uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. So, you know, they're still they're still kicking. They're still doing well. Uh, but I, I feel like that's an important piece of Cameron's career, especially mm. considering how effects heavy his next movie is going to be. And the fact that he's not using the, uh, you know, the company that he founded for it. Well, now you know why. Mm. Yeah. One of the crazy parts about Cameron, it seems like is, I mean, and then I, mean, I say crazy parts, this is probably one of his benefits is it seems like he doesn't, he doesn't get too attached to anything. Like he doesn't, you know, he's, he's ready to cut it loose if he has to, um, to move on with getting what he wants done. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, I even say that with like, a, I remember reading some stuff about like film and everything, you know, like he's, you know, like a, a lot of directors like consider that an artistic choice now and stuff. And he was predicting like way early on, you know, eventually we're not even going to use film. That's just going to, we're going to call it film, but it's not going to be film. And, um, and by Titanic being over, he was just kind of like, if I never use film again, I'll be happy. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm fine. If I would have had the stuff I had on Titanic for any of my earlier stuff, I would have just done that. And well, I mean, imagine if he was if he were able to take that expedition to the Titanic with digital, a digital camera where he didn't have just 12 minutes to shoot and how much easier that would have been. Yeah. Right. And cheaper, much, much cheaper. I was about to say very very cost effective <laughs> yeah and, and he was uh, very mean, much in you know like even with the cgi like coming up on avatar i was reading stuff earlier on with him like way earlier on um see he's so good at predicting things but he was just i mean he was just kind of seeing that same thing of like he's like uh prosthetics and that sort of thing are gonna go away you know we're gonna we're gonna update people's look with cg and that sort of thing he's like maybe you know kind of the stuff we talk about i mean he seemed to imply you know you of course you might use some prosthetics but you'll overlay it with some cg stuff right. um but well there's a reason that rebecca keegan named her book about james cameron the futurist yeah yeah exactly so he he he. i don't know he just always seems on the cusp of things and he's ready to let go like whatever aspect of filmmaking he has to or yeah he doesn't feel like he has to hold on to it just because that's the way it's always been done he's not that kind of guy right well around the time that cameron was breaking up with digital domain uh he was also breaking up with his wife oh as you may remember uh in our titanic episode we mentioned that cameron had married his longtime on again off again girlfriend and the terminator star linda hamilton was this his first wife this was number four. Uh, <laughs> this is number four at this point. Like I said, uh, anyway, he uh, he doesn't hang on to anything if he. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, is this part of that? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Maybe. Well, they got married in the summer of 1997, and by the summer of 1998, the two had separated, and they filed for divorce the following December. Well, Hamilton, you know, she had. We, we mentioned this very briefly, I think, in our Terminator Two episode, but she had struggled with a mood disorder and depression for much of her life and had begun seeking treatment for it in the mid-1990s, uh, she and Cameron had kind of hoped that starting a family would help her find some stability. Uh, they had a daughter. I think her name is uh, Josephine, if I'm not mistaken. But by the time Cameron emerged from his three-year experience of making Titanic, where he was just laser-focused on making that film, their marriage was a far from happy one. Uh, in fact, at the Oscars that March, the year that Titanic brought home 11 Oscars, the two were actually seen bickering on the red carpet, like in full view of the camera. 
And when a reporter later asked Hamilton if winning 11 Oscars had changed her husband, her reply was, quote, he was always a jerk, so there's no way to really measure. <laughs> well, years later, uh, in an interview with Oprah Winfrey, I think this is about 2005 or so when she had this interview, uh, Hamilton opened up about her mental health struggles, how they had affected her marriages. Uh, and she said that by the time Jim and I were together, I was really spiraling out of control. I fought him. I fought everything about his life. I really said a lot of cruel, aggressive things to him. You know, words that should never be spoken to the, to one that you love. So this wasn't like Cameron's a jerk and that's why we're, or he's, you know, cheating on his wife. Although we know he has a history of that in the, in the past. Yeah. Uh, this was really a, a, a situation where they were just, it was, it sounds like they were just not, compatible and largely because she was not in a place in her life where she could be a good partner i mean she fully admits that you know oprah just gets it out of them oprah Um, will do that yeah she's good at that um but no like linda hamilton definitely is is um you know it's it's sad that that she had to deal with this like even at the time of like uh dark fate i remember like somebody tracking her down in new orleans or something and uh doing an interview with her and she was like kind of a hermit you know most of the time and Mm, uh right and that's uh that's pretty sad but like she um she says that she knew who james cameron was going into the relationship and they just weren't compatible people one quote i saw she says uh he was all brain and work and i was all heart and living he had guns next to his side of the bed and i had crystals and fertility symbols next to mine we're just really not meant to be together Nowadays, we tease and play and have a lot of respect for each other. I think the man is an extraordinary director and he's a complete genius. So she's like nice stuff about him now. But sure. uh, and and yeah, and obviously she was dealing with her own thing, too. He seems to mostly be on pretty good terms with all of his ex-wives, actually. Him and Gela and her, you know, he you know, congratulated her. He was like the first person to congratulate her when she won Best Picture. And, you know, they're still friends. Uh, and they were, I mean, hell, they worked on the abyss together a- after they separated, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, people just don't need to be married to each other. <laughs> ah, that's why Todd and I divorced. Yeah. Uh, that and Gary's, Gary's, Gary's nowhere close to James Cameron's 12 inches. <laughs> that is, yeah, we'd be going into negative numbers, I guess. <laughs> Uh, wow no, do you have an any is that what you're saying i'm just saying compared to the amount of hair on todd's ass it seems like it it's just like once you push through that it's just oh like my god nothing. this is getting far too graphic. very it's a very it's just a little helmet peeking mm. above the bush oh so, wow <laughs> it's like homer going into the shrub <laughs> well Oh Lord! Okay, this is a graphic episode. It is. Who, why did we do this? <laughs> well, after Titanic, Cameron was eager to get back underwater to start exploring the ocean again, and he figured his best way to do this would be to sell a documentary about revisiting the Titanic wreckage. This time, using new technology that would allow him to take the audience further into the Titanic. He also planned on packaging this documentary with a trip to the sunken German warship, the Bismarck. So he figured, hey, you know, well, well, we're going to work with the Keldish. We'll, you know, knock out two with one stone. They're not that far from each other. I mean, they are. They're both in the same ocean, though. So uh, it's a lot easier to do it that way. Well, Cameron had also at this time been working on developing some new 3D cameras with a guy named Vince Pace. Vince Pace was a technician and cameraman who had helped him build the uh, the underwater lighting system that was used on the Abyss. And 
Cameron saw this new expedition to the Titanic wreckage as an opportunity to test out these new cameras. Now, Cameron was not interested in using 3D, 3D technology because it was like the hip thing to do at the time. Remember, this is like late 90s, early 2000s. At uh, this time, 3D tech was very much seen as a dead fad. Uh, it had first been used widely back in the 1950s. It saw revivals every decade or two. But I think the last real burst of like 3D movies being released commercially had probably been in the 1980s, especially with like horror stuff, you know, Friday the 13th, Part 3 and things like that. Jaws uh, 3D. Jaws 3D, although that stuff, even that was a very short-lived fad. And, and I would say um, had some questionable results, uh, including the two that we just named. Well, my favorite parts of it now are, uh, while I still love going back to watch these movies, is like that it doesn't carry over filmmaking wise when you're not watching the movie in 3D and like you're on Jaws and somebody's like, like Jason Voorhees is pointing a spear at your face. Like right. it's just uh, <laughs> a five or 10 second image of him just poking at the camera with a spear. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, okay. <laughs> well, traditional 3D tech. Uh, as had been used pretty much since the beginning of the format, was pretty imperfect and very impractical. Uh, the way that it had always worked was by filming an image with two cameras. You had one representing the right eye, one representing the left, and then when you synchronize these two images and watch them through glasses that allow each eye to only see its own movie, that's why you've got the red and the blue, you know, uh, the two films created the illusion of depth. The problem was uh, with this this version of 3d is that perfect synchronization of the images is nearly impossible which leads to most 3d films looking kind of fuzzy or having a ghost image and that's why people get like nauseas and stuff when they're watching 3d mm. did they ever try playing two different movies <laughs> i'm sure they have but uh, like, <laughs> like, what is it? like when that guy screened the shining like forwards and backwards at the same yeah time. yeah <laughs> oh, wow. uh, Cameron had experimented with the tech before uh, when he and John Bruno had made T2 3D Battle Across Time for Universal Studios. You remember that, guys? I uh, went to that. that. I do remember. Yeah, that. Yeah. It was cool. I went to it as well, like in the in the 90s. Uh, it was really cool. This kind of theme park ride. And it was a, like a 12 minute video that I think was had like a $60 million budget. It had like the budget of a feature film. And it, I remember it being super cool. I also remember there being like an exoskeleton animatronic like in the theater with you yeah you it was like that? right yeah. below the screen or something yep, yeah yeah i remember cool. that uh well to make that film cameron had two heavy film cameras mounted together which created this huge 450 pound package so think of a camera system the size of a, a dryer Jeez. right <laughs> like that's oh the, god yeah so not a little unwieldy <laughs> and despite this an unwieldy piece of equipment cameron was excited by, he, he liked the way that the, the film turned out. He was excited by the prospects of 3D, and he set about trying to figure out ways to improve it, which we will, of course, get back to later on down the line. Yeah, as once Avatar hits, it's just all 3D all the time. For That's all we Jim got, Cameron. Now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the same time that he's looking into ways to improve 3D technology, Cameron was also working with his brother Mike on building smaller robotic cameras that would allow him to get into the nooks and crannies of the Titanic in ways that the ROV that he'd used on the film could not. Do you think Mike's ever just sitting around and just like? God damn it, Jim. Just let me take a nap. <laughs> well, uh, it took them about three years and $1 million for each of the two bots that they ended up using, which they ended up nicknaming Jake and Elwood. 
Nice. Blues Brothers. Why, but, but I like it because I love you the get Blues it. Brothers. Yeah. I mean, I, I get I know the reference, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they named him Jake and Elwood, but I, I, I do get the reference. Well, I'm glad you asked because, <laughs> like, no, I'm just kidding. I don't really have an answer for this. You know, yeah, you did last time, though. I did actually for Snoop Dogg. For but... Snoop Dogg, but not Jake and Elwood. I think they just thought it would be cool. They just yeah. like the Blues Brothers, you know. So most ROVs that could operate at the depths where the Titanic lay were pretty big, you know, about the size of refrigerators. Those are like the ones that we see in, in Titanic. They're, they're pretty large. Jake and Elwood, however, were only about the size of microwaves. And instead of relying on a big cable connected to the Mir submarines as their power source, they relied on an internal battery. Uh, also and- made a mean pizza. <laughs> 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 and uh, they had this thin fiber optic cable that was about the width of a human hair that would send date, data back to the monitor. So much a, a huge step up in technology compared to what they were using just a couple of years earlier, you know. So cut to September 2001. Totally, in, totally insignificant months. Yeah. Uneventful. <laughs> Cameron's back on on a Russian sub. You know they're using the Keldish again, same same research vessel they'd used on Titanic. Uh, he gets back on one of the mirrors. He's heading down to the Titanic's uh, wreckage site once again. This time he brings Bill Paxton along with him to kind of provide a, a sort of layman's view for the documentary that he's filming. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Louis Abernathy is there as well. Remember the big bearded guy in, in Titanic? Oh yeah, uh, he's he's there with them, uh, but. And, and in addition to them, they've also got several scientists and historians, including uh, Ken Marshall and Don Lynch. Remember those guys who'd been the consultants on Titanic? Ken Marshall was the one who painted the uh, the paintings in the book that helped get the movie greenlit. Yeah. Uh, and he brought along uh, John Bruno as well. John Bruno is actually credited as a, uh, a second unit director or assistant director or something on, on the documentary. Mm-hmm. But John Bruno's there too. So uh, he's got his buddies and he's got a bunch of scientists and, and Titanic nerds on the sub with him. Well, the footage that Jake and Elwood brought back is pretty remarkable. You know, with these two miniature ROVs, they're able to see things that nobody had laid eyes on since 1912. They're able to get inside the ship, go through portholes. They, they find like a China cabinet that's almost completely deteriorated, but the China is still stacked and almost perfectly preserved. Like it's, it's pretty incredible. Some of the wow. stuff they see, some of the stained glass windows that are still somehow fully intact. Like the window, the glass hasn't broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really wild. Like stuff that they could have never gotten on their previous uh, expedition. But then as they're shooting this on the, on their second dive, Elwood lost power. Uh, the ROV's battery actually exploded in internally and Jeez. it ended up, so it just died and it floated to the surface uh, it's inside of the Titanic at the time. So it floats up to the uh, the ceiling of Titanic's D deck and just kind of stuck there. Well, Cameron's not going to leave Elwood behind. For one, it's a million dollar vehicle. Uh, but also like they didn't want it to be just another, they didn't want it to be like stuck in the wreckage. It didn't feel right for it to be like abandoned in the wreckage of the Titanic. Right. So the only tool that they had to get it back was another million dollar vehicle the only other one in existence which is jake the other rov otherwise cameron was gonna dive down himself <laughs> yeah he was gonna i mean he would have died yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but very, he'd have very, done it but you, i was gonna say that doesn't mean he wouldn't have tried <laughs> he would have died very quickly uh so the robots, the, these uh, ROVs had actually been designed to rescue each other. They were lined with Velcro so that one could kind of grab onto the other if necessary. Mm-hmm. So they tried this a couple of times. It's not working. 
Uh, they keep trying it, and they're about to give up. And then Lewis Abernathy suggested a pretty low-tech method to retrieve the stuck ROV, which was a clothes hanger. So they attach a clothes because the, the robots had this little bit of mesh on them. So his idea was to use the clothes hanger to hook in the mesh and grab it. And uh, on their next dive, they made another attempt to retrieve uh, Elwood, and they, and they got it. Nice. And, uh, and James Cameron's actually piloting it this whole time like he's he's controlling the rov so he's actually in charge of uh of doing it it makes for some excellent documentary drama it does actually because yeah. uh, you see all of this in the documentary it's uh it it, it is very dramatic like it's it's a it's some really cool footage that yeah. obviously they had not planned on that being part of the movie but it, it works really well in the context oh and also this is all happening on september 11 2001 mm. <laughs> so, yeah about an hour into that day's dive, Cameron's young, his other brother, one of his other brothers, I think he's got like four of them, his youngest brother, John David, uh, who was manning communications aboard the Keldish, sent the Mir One a message that simply said, terrorist activity, World Trade Center, air travel stopped. Well, they didn't know what to make of that. They're like, oh, should we abort the mission? What's going on? You know, uh, to what uh, to several miles above us um, in the real world. And uh, his brother told him, do not abort the dive. Keep doing what you're doing. They continued their dive, but they could only kind of wonder what the hell, what what did that mean? Can you imagine getting that message and not knowing what the hell's going on? Yeah, not geez. knowing that George W. Bush had directed a bigger blockbuster <laughs> than you ever could have. Much more expensive, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a terrible oh. joke. No, it's a good joke, Gary. All right, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> After several more attempts uh, to get... Elwood, uh, with again, Cameron's doing, the, he's controlling this all himself. They were able to rescue it from the wreckage and then they returned to the Keldish, you know, in what should be a celebration because they got this million dollar vehicle off. But when they get aboard, the mood had kind of, kind of changed aboard the, the research vessel and it didn't really feel appropriate to celebrate the way that they would have otherwise. Uh, they returned to the ship and they found out about the terrorist attacks that took down the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And you see all of this in the documentary, by the way, in the, in the, in the final kind of final minutes of the documentary. And uh, Cameron says, all of a sudden, everything we're doing means nothing. It felt like it was so trivial. You're invested in your own fantasy feeling like it's life or death. And then you realize it's stupid. It's juvenile. And th those sentiments are actually echoed in the film by, I think it's Don Lynch who kind of says something along those lines. Uh, it's either him or Kim Marshall, one of the two Titanic researchers where they're like, you know, we we've been researching this, you know, this, this wreckage that is literally about, you know, 1500 people dying. And then we get up to, but this, this is kind of a, a tragedy that feels a little, abstract because it happened so long ago you know yeah. then they get they get back up to the surface and they're in a world where a, an even bigger tragedy has just occurred uh in real time you know so it, it's pretty heavy on them they're out in the middle of the ocean well yeah. i mean to be fair i mean i think that uh not not to make this a whole show about uh 9 11 but uh, I think that kind of was the uh, feeling for about everybody on that day. Like, yeah, it, it just kind of uh, once it happened, I think generally everyone's like, well, this is the only thing I'm going to remember from this time period. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, it was monumental for for everyone. I mean, every literally everyone, you know, just like people of, of like our parents generation, they remember where they were when JFK got assassinated. We remember where we were on that day yeah yeah uh, i was working at a johnny rockets uh you know i was not doing anything as cool as diving to the titanic 
uh, I was flipping hamburgers and, and playing fifties music in a dumb diner. And that felt incredibly stupid. Uh, well, most of the time that felt incredible, <laughs> <stupid. But laughs> it felt especially stupid that day, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and the, and the documentary, it kind of structures it to where this is kind of like the end of it. You know, mm. they come up it's and it's, it's on nine 11, but that wasn't in, in real life. That was not the end of their shoot. They, they, after a few more days, they returned to dives. They they made quite a few dives to Titanic after that. And you see that footage throughout the film. It's just edited to where, you know, uh, you've got Ken Marshall doing like a video diary. And he's like, yep, today. And he's, he's saying his diary. He's like, yeah, today's September 11, 2001. And then you're like, oh, what? Okay. And then they kind of <laughs> get, get into it. But uh, a few days later, they they go back down. They, they shoot some more. And but in light of recent news, you know, Cameron decided he'd put off his expedition to the Bismarck. So they're not going to do that right now. Uh, and by the time the 2001 expedition to the Titanic was over, Cameron had spent 330 hours of his life down at the Titanic. That's more time than the captain of the Titanic had spent on the Titanic. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Jeez. The result That's a of the film, good way to I don't I'm sorry. I was just going to point out that was interesting perspective there. Yeah. Well, the resulting film would be released by Walt Disney Pictures in 2003 in the IMAX 3D format under the title Ghosts of the Abyss. Uh, and it's really good. If you guys, I don't know if you guys had a chance to watch this one along uh, while, while we were leading up to this episode, but Ghosts of the Abyss is, uh, of the documentaries that Cameron made during this time period, I think it's the best one. Yeah, I, I, I watched it actually, for some reason, I watched it before Titanic, before we even watched oh, yeah. Titanic, but uh yeah, I remember loving it. I think uh, Rolling Stone had like made a list of you know like they do their greatest albums and stuff. They did greatest uh, 3D movies ever and stuff, and this was on there like pretty high up. I think. Yeah, nice. it's a, it's it's a really excellent documentary, and the footage that I mean, I love the footage of the Titanic in the movie, but the footage that they get in Ghost of the Abyss is like a thousand times better. And so if you're if you're into that stuff that you see in the like first fifteen minutes, twenty minutes of titanic watch this documentary because you get even more footage better footage they've got better technology but you also get a really cool behind the scenes look at how they got that footage like it shows them working on the rovs working on the submarines so all this stuff that we talked about in our first titanic episode all that technical stuff where they're going down to the titanic you actually get to see a lot of that in this documentary uh, so if you know I, I would highly recommend checking it out if you if you're a fan of that stuff uh, it's incredibly interesting i think um, also, and also it, sorry to interrupt you, Gary, but also it, uh, it's just a charming hangout with Bill Paxton for an hour and a half, honestly, because <laughs> he kind of narrates it and it, it really made me miss Bill Paxton. <laughs> like, it, like watching the, the movie, I'm like, like, cause this is not him acting. This is him just being Bill Paxton. And you're like, uh, oh, that's what a charming dude. Like there's a scene where he has to pee and they hand him a bottle and he like, like bashfully ask the other guy in the submarine to turn around so he could pee in the bottle. And it's, it's very funny. Uh, he's, he's very charming in it. And I miss, I miss Bill Paxton. For all the criticisms mm. of, of his acting, you're just like, you watch it and you're like, this is, this is just Bill Paxton. I love him. Yeah. He's just, he's just this guy. Uh, side note, uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket, uh, their lead singer, Glenn Phillips, wrote the song Departure that's used at the beginning of the movie. And oh, yeah. It. Yeah. Um, but uh, did James not Cameron, know we were going to have a Toad Wet Sprocket reference on this episode. You never do. They or, on, or on any episode. <laughs> <laughs> they, just, they just come out of nowhere. Uh, but uh, 
they, there was a song called Nightingale Song that uh, apparently James Cameron was a really big fan of uh, that Toad the Wet Sprocket did. And uh, so he tried to license it and he wanted to use it for like a minute at the beginning of the movie. And they tried to charge him $5,000. And James Cameron said, no, I am not paying that. So he just <laughs> hired like Glenn Phillips to write a new song. I love uh, that. Called Departure. <laughs> That's great. For less than $5,000? I guess less than $5,000. Or if he thought it was worth it just to pay the guy to write a song, especially for them. Uh, also, fun fact, one of, uh, let's see, I think since the since Piranha 2, the only uh, James Cameron movie to not have a title that starts with A or T. What, what a dumb piece of trivia. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, I, the dude loves TNA. Yeah. There, <laughs> God, there it is. That. that was good. <laughs> uh, and also, I meant to tell you this before we started recording, but just so you know, I happen to have for each one of these films, not any TV stuff, just FYI, but for the films, I do have one, uh, Somebody Needs a Nap. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah. All right. All right. So, so you've got one for Ghost of the Abyss? I do. And, All right. Uh, let's and it's it. actually tough with some of these documentaries to get a one star. Like this one is a one and a half star uh, review. Because they're uh, like, well, I still learned something, but. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but Mountain of Conflict here says Cameron is the king of give me money so I can pursue my own hobby and you'll get something out of it. What is the point here, though? No, really. What is the value of this doc? Hearing Bill Paxton say, can you believe it? 200 times. Hearing just the two of us in a long scene where JC rescues a robot. <laughs> I do like that needle drop. <laughs> it is good. <laughs> a, a short detour about biological life with no real deeper insight that you could take away. Paxton improvising comedy bits. Maybe I've seen too much of the Titanic DVD extras, but this is so pointless. It's clear that they had no real idea what the narrative should be and to bring in Paxton because nobody would want to watch James Cameron for too long. Also, the recreation of scenes from Titanic with different actors and even the scientists themselves, but using the ship for the movie is so clearly, we don't want to pay the original actors, so let's make it again, but bad this time. <laughs> it is weird that they do that but i do like that like don lynch i think plays the victor garber character the designer of the ship and you know it's him because you just saw him interviewed he's on the sub and then you see him like in period garb and you know it's it, it is kind of odd but it doesn't bother me i i would not have expected them to use footage from the movie because then they're they, remember this is being released by by disney who uh would have had to pay fox they didn't own fox at the time uh, they would have had to pay Fox to use that, like a, a probably obscene amount of money to use actual footage from the movie Titanic. Of course, oh, yeah. they do that. You know, now it's way that cheaper. Just... Does on Fox? Can James Cameron go back and redo Ghost? Do like a Abyss? special edition of this? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and use the yeah. actual footage from the film. It's it's kind of weird that this one is not on Disney Plus. There are a couple of other James Cameron ones on there, or there's one other one that he directed on there. Um, so, but you can rent it pretty easily. But I, it, it, I thought it was odd that it wasn't actually on Disney, even though they released it. But maybe it's a rights thing based on who funded it and things like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. So uh, we're going to be jumping around on the timeline a little bit on this, just because we're trying to tell like little bits and pieces, and a lot. Obviously, a lot of these things overlap in the timeline. Uh, well, so we're going to go back to a little bit before his uh, expedition to the Titanic that we just talked about, right? Uh, Cameron got married again. 
<laughs> this time, this yeah. time it was just to uh, Susie Amos. Su- Susie Amos is the actress who played Rose's granddaughter in Titanic. Uh, and Amos, you know, she had she was not like a famous actress. She'd appeared in quite a few movies at this point. Um, she was primarily either in very small roles in big movies or in big starring roles in very small movies that nobody's heard of. Uh, she had a son uh, named Jasper from her previous marriage. She was married to actor, an actor named Sam Robards, who is, uh, I don't know anything about Sam Robards. I know that he is the son of Jason Robards, who Jason Robards is a pretty famous actor from back in the day. Uh, but I don't know anything else about him. I think the when you look him up, the most significant thing he's in is Spielberg's AI and I can't place him. but Susie, you know she was another one of those kind of adventurous types that cameron was often attracted to uh she could pilot a cessna airplane she could shoot a rifle ride a horse uh but she was also as as tom arnold would later describe her a peaceful earth mother type who really brings out the best in cameron and lets him be him and unusually for an actress, and I think this might have been part of what, what James Cameron saw in her, was that she didn't really seem that interested in being famous. She didn't want to live that like movie star life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she would actually end up retiring from acting not long after she married James Cameron. By any account that I've found, uh, and th- I, this could be wrong, but nothing I've found has indicated that the two had any kind of like affair while filming Titanic, you know, while he's married to to Linda Hamilton or uh, engaged, I guess, to Linda Hamilton. But uh, Bill Paxton would later say that uh, I could tell that Jim was sweet on her for what it's worth. I mean, he's, this is still James Cameron's wife, just to make sure we're clear on that. Cause we've been giving him a lot of shit for all his wives. I mean, Jim likes to get wet and so does big Jim. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Iron Jim. Iron Jim. Iron Jim likes to get wet just as much as regular Jim. <laughs> well, the two would go on to have three children together who they raised in Malibu along with the two children from each of their previous marriages. And uh, as Gary said, the two are still married to this day. So uh, fifth time's a charm, I guess, yeah. for, for James Cameron. Well, I think, sure. <laughs> I think that's the common phrase. Yeah, I think so. I'm going to talk to my like, wife tonight. Amos's final acting appearance is in the 1999 movie Judgment Day starring Mario Van Peebles and Ice-T. Do you guys remember this movie? Judgment Day. No. 100% no. <laughs> no? Okay. It's definitely like it's definitely like late 90s straight to video version of like an exploitation movie it's it's uh I, I don't i remember renting it back in the day but i do not remember anything about it which probably doesn't the fact that it stars mario van peebles and ice tea probably does not bode well for it i was gonna say like if mario van peebles was in it like there's a good chance it was dtv you know good for mario van peebles he he's, he's that, made, he made a name for himself he made a career out of it man yeah. you know uh but she after she retired she kind of shifted her focus to environmental activism and in 2005, she co-founded an independent nonprofit school in California that focused on sustainability. It later actually became the country's first vegan K-12 school with 100% with a 100% plant-based lunch program. Uh, the school is also zero waste and 100% solar powered thanks to solar sunflowers, which are these like solar panels that kind of open up like a flower mm. they, where they've got all their panels that open up. And those uh, solar panels were designed by James Cameron. 
Oh yeah, they were. Isn't nice. that wild? Like what the fuck? What the fuck can this guy not do? Uh, <laughs> this is a theme for Jim Cameron. He's going to start trying to make the world a better place. Uh, this is right. called the, the the Muse School, I think. Um, yeah, and and that's and it, why I wanted to make sure we focused on this because this this is relevant to what he's going to be doing down the line. Oh, a hundred percent. But yeah, uh, for for Susie Amos, that I think this was an idea that she and her sister came up with. Uh, Rebecca yeah, her Amos. her sister is the other co-founder of the. Yeah, and uh, this also led to them starting a program that's still going on called uh, OMD or One Meal a Day. She wrote a book yeah. around that. Uh, yeah, I think she's got a couple us. of books now. It began with all this because they had to convince parents that it was okay to have like the all vegan lunch program mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And they're like, listen, you can give them bacon and eggs in the morning for breakfast if you want to. But for one meal a day, you're going to have completely plant-based whole food, yeah. like uh, a meal and uh so anyway, that was like a it's a, it's like an initiative you can still I looked at it literally before we started this just to see it was like is this still around in it? It, it yeah, is it's, it's pretty neat. I mean, she she also founded something called the Red Carpet Green Dress Initiative, which showcases sustainable fashion on the red carpet, specifically at the Oscars. Um, and you know, we're going to the, the I wanted to talk about this because obviously his Cameron's growing focus on environmentalism will greatly influence his writing on Avatar. Uh, and and you know, even though that school ended up being fully vegan, the two they didn't go uh, fully vegan until after watching the documentary Forks Over Knives in 2012, mm-hmm. uh, which of course is at, even after Avatar came out. And then in 2014, they founded Plant Power Task Force is a fairly aggressive name for an organization that's <laughs> yeah. focused on showing the impact of animal agriculture on climate change and the environment. And then uh, Susie Amos also founded the Cameron Family Farms and Food Forest Organics, which is a plant-based cafe and market in New Zealand, of all places. And I think that's nice. because I'm pretty sure uh, Avatar was filmed in New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken. So that's probably why it's in New Zealand. I like, you know, I like a lot of guys like Tim Ferriss and stuff like that. I just think they're fun. But uh, one of his books is uh, Tribe of Mentors and uh, James and Susie Cameron are in there. So I've been like joking about little things that I've read in there in the past. But their Tribe of Mentors is actually a pretty fucking cool book. Just side note. It's like he interviews like 500 really successful, productive people and ask them like the same five questions. And uh, Mm. they all answer. And it's just a book that is the answers from these people. And so you could just flip it open to anywhere at any time and just try to get inspiration from like somebody answering or like just, there's no order to it or anything. Right. It's just like, Oh, here's James Cameron and Susie Amos. What did they say to these questions? Anyway, uh, their most gifted books uh, at the time of the writing of this were uh, the China study and the cheese trap. Uh, the China study is all about uh plant-based whole food. Obviously mm-hmm. that was one of their big things and the cheese trap. Well, uh, that's because uh, cheese is always the thing that people claim is the hardest to give up. So all mammals have naturally occurring opiates in their breast milk for a reason, because cool. it keeps it's addictive. The, yeah. That keeps the baby coming back to nurse so that it will thrive. But if you think about a human baby growing from seven pounds to 18 pounds in a year, then you think of a cow growing from 60 pounds to 600 pounds in a year, you're getting that many more opiates in your body and you have you think about it so you're you're having a glass of milk or cream in your coffee but when you have yogurt they actually take even more of it and condense it down and stuff it into yogurt or uh cheese it's like a block 
of morphine going into your body. These are all uh, James Cameron quotes from the thing. Well, this, is, the this explains really why I like cheese as much as I do. Cheese yeah, is 100%. <laughs> I love cheese so much. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I we I've got I've got like impossible burgers in my freezer like all the time now uh right. but I still put cheese on them. <laughs> <laughs> but this is all about health and sustainability and it it sounds like I'm making fun of the guy. I, I mean no, I, kinda, I mean but but it, it, I'm really not cuz I'm sure that someday in the future I really do believe this that we're all going to look back we'll be looked back on as fucking savages yeah uh, that's that's how the world i think is supposed to work anyway we can look back on people a hundred years ago and for like a thousand different reasons be like you guys were fucking terrible yeah uh, but the world's supposed to keep evolving that way i think but uh um but but he actually even says like in in the tribe of mentors thing he actually talks about how this he even thinks the whole food plant-based diet thing uh, fueled his productivity uh, he mentions in there that he would get sick on shoots every time he did like a shoot at some point he would get sick especially the big ones like titanic where it takes like six months or something uh he yeah, said yeah. even uh, just in case we don't mention but he even says it happens on avatar um but like he does them and it takes like a month off because he gets sick and he can't function anymore and he's just so tired and beat but then he'll go on and like where he's at now, like do like Avatar two and three back to back. And he says he feels fine. He's great. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and I mean, I listen, think... we we saw I saw um, Weird Al Yankovic a couple of nights ago mm -hmm. uh, who was in town and the man's 62 years old. And uh, on this particular tour, he's sitting down a lot but because of the nature of the tour. But the guy is in incredible shape for his yeah. age. Uh, he's, if you watch him on his regular shows, he's jumping all over the stage, kicking high kicks, and uh, he looks great. And it's it's because of his vegan diet, honestly. I mean, yeah. that's a large part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, by the time you get to Avatar 2 and 3, I think they've made their sets completely vegan catering. And wow. uh, uh, they're, they're also like executive producing a, a documentary called The Game Changers, which is about like plant-based protein and stuff, because mm. the biggest thing like... It's going to have like Arnold in it and stuff because it's like everybody thinks you got to have meat. That's what you've been taught. If they say like doctors have been taught that and just like the dairy industry, it's like pushing milk's the only way you can get calcium. People in the meat industry are pushing that meat's the only way to get protein. And they're yeah. like, no, all this stuff comes from. How's a cow get calcium? Exactly. That's <laughs> literally a thing they say in there. <laughs> like, well, the cows and bulls and everything are just eating fucking lettuce. So how are they yeah. getting it? You know, and uh or their protein and uh so anyway all this is worth mentioning because sustainability veganism etc all become huge parts of cameron's life like starting yeah. in this area with sumi amos and essentially in all this time and his relationship with her ocean space etc cameron gets really this philosophical view that you should learn to lean in more to you're part of an interconnected universe. You're part of a bigger machine. Um, and you start seeing that play out uh, yeah. in the next movie. Well, mm. yeah. And, and I think that, you know, as we'll, we'll get into it when we talk about the movie, but Avatar is an idea that he's had for, for a long time before this. But I do think that it's the way that Avatar ends up leaning into environmentalism is inspired greatly, I think, by his relationship with Susie Amos. Uh, and, and I think that all of this stuff is a major influence on his work on Avatar and will be on all of his work probably going forward. So it really kind of felt important to not just skip over this stuff because it is relevant to the story that we're trying to tell.
hundred percent because you know if if you're if you're a vegan you're gonna tell somebody yeah <laughs> <laughs> well uh so cameron was not completely cut off from the world of filmmaking during this period either and in, in 1998 after Titanic, he began working on acquiring the rights, uh, the remake rights, actually, to Andre Tarkovsky's Solaris. Uh, it took about five years to secure the rights, by which time Cameron was too busy with other projects to direct it himself. So in 2000, uh, Steven Soderbergh was working on Traffic. Uh, and around this time, he pitched his ideas for a Solaris remake to James Cameron. And Cameron and uh, I think Ray Sanchini is who he pitched it to as well. They kind of liked Soderbergh's idea, and they began development on the film, which was released in 2002 to kind of a lukewarm reception, but I think it's a pretty good movie myself. It's not a commercial movie, though, by any means, but, I mean, neither is Solaris, the original. I was going to say, the the original, (laughs) I remember having that on VHS way back in the day, and it's not like a uh, majorly exciting no, blockbuster movie. Wonderful movie, though. Yeah, and, and, but yeah. and I think the remake, which George Clooney starred in, I think is really good myself. But yeah, that was that was one of the things Cameron produced during this time. Uh, another post Titanic project that he started work on in 1998 was called Bright Angel Falling. Uh, this was one where he was he was actually co writing the screenplay with Peter Hyams, who was a friend of Cameron's. Uh, Peter Himes is the director himself. He directed movies like Time Cop and Sudden Death, two of the best uh, Van Damme movies of the 90s, in my opinion. Yeah. I was uh, going to say, like, probably <laughs> the two best, unless you count John Woo's uh, Hard Target. Hard Target's on, also on that list, yeah. Uh, he did The Relic, which I really like. End of Days, which I'm a huge fan of End of Days. Uh, I remember us uh, screen, the podcast, we screened it at uh, the radio room here in yeah, Canada, right. a couple years fun. ago. That was really fun. Well, the script for Bright Angel Falling told the story of a massive meteor that was on a collision course with the Earth and the efforts of a team of astronauts to stop it. Uh, the script ended up getting leaked online before the film was ever uh, before it ever went into production, and the project ended up being abandoned. But I kind of have to imagine that the release of Michael Bay's Armageddon in 1998, which was produced by Gail Ann Hurd, by the way, mm. uh, might have influenced that decision more than just a leaked script because... Listen, reading the description of what Bright Angel Falling is about, it's it's Armageddon. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, I mean, it doesn't say that they're, they're oil drillers or anything, but it's the same movie. And then Deep Impact also come out that year, right? Yeah, another movie, did. another movie about an asteroid coming out that same year. It was it was <laughs> that 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 period of time where like the same kind of movie came out all the time. Like yeah. it was like uh, I remember yeah. those, and like I was working in the video store, and you get like Volcano and Dante's Volcano and Inferno. Dante's Peak, yeah, Dante's Peak, yeah, not uh, not Dante's Inferno is a very different movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think Susie Amos might be in Dante's Peak if I'm not mistaken, or something like be. that. You might be right. You might but, be right. Uh, yeah, anyway, um, I, I have a hard time believing that James Cameron would have written this as like oil drillers get sent to the asteroid because uh, I mean, he did oil drillers in the abyss, but but at least in the ocean, <laughs> you know, there's oil there. And so like they, it's more plausible that they would be down there. You know, are you saying that like James Cameron is more concerned with the actual science than Michael Bay? I'm saying if you've never, <laughs> one of the bright points of the career of Ben Affleck is going back and watching his Armageddon commentary because <laughs> he is like ripping the shit out of the movie the whole time. <laughs> and he's just like, he's like, what is this? Who the fuck would send these guys? <laughs> like, that, that is like literally his commentary. He's yeah. like, this is so stupid. Did anybody read this? <laughs> 
Well, uh, in, in 1999, Cameron was planning a five-hour miniseries that was meant to show as accurately and realistically as possible the first human journey to Mars. Uh, this story was about a, a group of explorers who go to Mars, they establish a settlement, get in a bit of a pickle of some sort, and then they have to use their wits to get out of it, which honestly, describing it that way makes it sound like Ridley Scott's The Martian. I yeah. guess they, they were going to science <laughs> the shit out of it. <laughs> yeah. So much like he had done with Titanic, Cameron planned on making this as, as realistic you know, scientifically as possible. He wanted to work within the rules of physics and the science that would actually make colonization on Mars possible. He even consulted with NASA on it. Uh, and there, during the development of the project, he designed a combination Mars lander and rover because normally there's a lander, there's a rover, it's two different components. But he actually designed uh, one vehicle that was that could do both, which had never actually existed before. He showed this design to NASA and they're like, yeah, that could, that could work. That's pretty cool. And then a few <laughs> years later, they launched their own lander rover to Mars. Uh, and it wasn't Cameron's exact design, but it was pretty close. So, <laughs> they, so fucking NASA is stealing his ideas. <laughs> yeah. And, and they dicked him over on even the, like he, he was designing cameras that would work on their version of the rover basically, or like whatever the final product was going to be. And I read like they gave me some excuse about like testing or something and it didn't get the testing in time for them to use his cameras on the rover and uh, yeah. they sent it off, but whatever um, he was working with. Man, uh, it's almost like you can't trust the government. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but, but all of this is part of like uh, another thing I definitely wanted to mention is that he gets uh, in. And a lot of the interviews I read with him from this time period or right after Titanic, when people are like, well, what do you want to do next? What do you, you know, what's your next idea? One of the things he always brings up too is like science that he wants to make a movie that like scientists are cool. And yeah, it's yeah. not just like we're nerdy guys on a computer and just like, you know, or whatever. Just, I feel like he moved a little bit in that direction with um, miles Dyson. And, yeah. And, yeah. And Terminator, yeah. you know, I believe that, <laughs> like he doesn't back down at all. You know? Right. Right. And so once like, he gets he, over the initial shock of a giant, you know, Austrian robot in his house and a, and a woman in fatigue trying to murder him. Once he gets over that, he's, he's in, he's in, you know, to the end, literally. Well, yeah. He's, he's obviously concerned with the fact that like, you want to present like science as being cool or like science as being important, which is like his whole career, the, mm -hmm. the science and engineering, all the STEM skills or whatever. Like he's, he's like, uh, you know, like if you keep presenting them as fucking nerds the whole time, then yeah. that's not really helping anything. <laughs> Um, right right but uh, I, he was I gotta imagine i gotta imagine for somebody maybe working the front desk at nasa there's part of the okay listen every now and then the phone's gonna ring and it's gonna be jim cameron <laughs> Believe we me. don't have time to talk to him all the time so just <laughs> take as many detailed notes as you possibly can Here's the file. We'll get back to James him. Cameron stuff. <laughs> just uh, listen to him. Just keep saying yes, yes, that sounds good, and he'll he'll just keep talking. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading this interview with him in a uh, Premier magazine in 2000, and uh, he, he was talking about this Mars thing, and he was working on a script with like Al Reinert, and uh, then he started work uh, who did like Apollo 13. Yeah. Um, and then he started working on a novel about this. He was thinking about pausing to work on a novel to flesh out his ideas or something. I don't even know if that novel ever actually came out. I don't think I saw it. I don't think about so. It. No. Um, anyway, uh, in, in that interview, he did, uh, side note before the point that I was getting to, uh, he did say that he predicted that the actual trip to Mars 
uh this was in 2000 so if somebody was like oh you're a fan of 2001 right like uh we're not anywhere close to that and he's like yeah well you know things got fucked up or whatever but he's like <laughs> uh he's like the actual trip to mars won't take place for another 12 to 15 years mm. so yeah, we're in 2022 as we record. So he's not right about everything. Well, I mean, <laughs> honestly, part of that's because the government just stopped uh, caring about space exploration. That's true. <laughs> so. um, but what is interesting is in the same article, he talks about how um, what I thought I found this cool. Uh, he says, quote, the Mars Project is a fictional miniseries with tendrils in many media. The current plan I have in my head is to do it both as a TV series, TV miniseries and a 3D IMAX movie. Mm -hmm. We're also doing a live streaming website, which we'll treat as a real mission with actors who stay in character and talk over a webcam the entire time. Interesting. I'm, in I'm involved with a company that is creating streaming media from an from extreme environments. We're also developing tiny 3D cameras for the IMAX project. So we hope to see those flown in space. We're building complex sets. Space travel is a subject I find immensely fascinating. Yeah, so he, he's not like just retired during this time, is what you're saying. He right, is, no, he's what, still as, building as he, all this shit. Right. Like, he described himself as the busiest unemployed man in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, his idea was to re release that as simultaneously as a 3D IMAX movie, hoping that it would kind of boost the 3D format. Uh, but then two other Mars movies opened in 2000. This kind of goes back to what we were just talking about with the asteroid movies and the volcano movies. Uh, in 2000, two, two movies about Mars came out. One was Red Planet. One was Mission to Mars, uh, directed by Brian De Palma. And they both bombed, both critically and commercially. They both did awful. So his Mars movie was kind of put on the back burner. Not because he didn't think that it was viable to do a good Mars movie, but studios aren't going to, fund it when two movies about going to Mars just like were disasters at the box office. Yeah. But just because the Mars project was shelved didn't mean that he'd lost his interest in space exploration. Uh, in fact, uh, Cameron actually approached a privately run Russian space program about going to the Mir space station and filming a documentary there with his 3d cameras. Uh, he, he, trained to be an astronaut he went under he underwent exhaustive physical tests and astronaut training in moscow uh, but then the Mir space station ended up getting shut down due to lack of funding so he wasn't able to go it was actually suggested that he could go to the international space station instead but that meant getting nasa involved nasa's a bureaucracy uh you know and and that wasn't something he relished but he was still you know interested in doing this documentary. Well, his project had gotten some momentum at this point. He'd, he'd gotten commitments for nearly $30 million in funding. He was looking for a little bit more than that. Uh, so he's continuing to kind of develop this. And he had actually planned on doing a spacewalk himself during the filming of the project. But then he found out that that meant spending 18 months abroad and away from his, you know, he's got a wife and five kids at this point, uh, in order to train. Uh, so we started kind of having second thoughts and he asked NASA to give him six months to think about it. Well, during that six months in February of 2003, the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated over Texas upon reentry. You guys probably remember this killed all seven crew members. And after Columbia, NASA really refocused its human exploration program. Uh, they, after that would barely be sending their own people into space, let alone some, filmmaker doing what they probably saw as some kind of vanity project, you know? 
Yeah, it'd be weird. He had a good. It's it's weird to read some of this stuff now, but he had like a really good relationship with the Russians. Uh, some yeah. of the stuff you were mentioning at this time. Well, I mean, that probably started with Titanic working on the Keldish. Yeah, yeah, and and at that time, uh, at least at that time, and I'm not sure now. Maybe China's done something, but I think they were the only country who'd done real space travel, like manned space travel. Um, and he said his his Mars story originally had a bunch of cosmonauts uh, in it, so he had gone and done some training with them for that as well. Uh, his belief is that we couldn't make it to Mars without working together with the Russians. We would have to do this together. And he he'd been to Johnson Space Center and done like space shuttle sims and but he wanted to see what like life would be like for a cosmonaut um he talks about uh, the centrifuge that they had over there he wanted to ride in that because he thought it would be a fun experience to simulate a launch and nasa doesn't take people off the street and let them just ride and stuff so in russia <laughs> you could pay to do it so he did and uh, he just wanted to see how he'd hold up and they're like yeah you'd be fine um, <laughs> he talks about in the Mars mission, like one of the things they could simulate over there was like, he's like, there's two high G events that take place in a Mars mission. One is when you launch from earth, that's less interesting. The really interesting one is when you arrive at Mars and the way that you're planning on doing it is you come screaming into the atmosphere and you pull like seven or eight G's in order to slow down from interplanetary speed so that you can land on the planet you do that after six months of being in weightlessness, it just feels like your body's being crushed out of existence. Yep. So I wanted to know what that felt like. <laughs> wow. That is a literal quote from James Cameron. <laughs> um, and if you're wondering if he, he's going to end up being one of these guys like Elon or Richard Branson or something that does it out of their own pocket or something like that. Um, he says, uh, Quote, here's the thing. I'm a supporter of commercial space ventures and the subcat in the subcategory of space tourism. I personally don't think space tourism tourism is how we're going to get to Mars or get back into exploring the solar system or even get to the stars. I certainly wouldn't want to join the elite ranks of rich bozos who just do it for a thrill. However, if I could figure out a good compelling film that needed to be made and the money was there, I'd be more than happy to go do that on film. I told NASA Administrator Dan Golden, if you need somebody to tell a story about the International Space Station, you can sign me up. Nice. Well, yeah, I mean, his <laughs> relationship with NASA continued even after this you know the space mission kind of got canceled in 2002 he became a member of the nasa advisory council which is kind of a uh, a council of non-working astronauts i guess you would say who advise nasa on certain things where he got to hang out with guys like buzz aldrin and john glenn you know and some of the world's most renowned scientists and engineers he became like a spokesperson almost for nasa like one of his roles being on this advisory council is was to like go around speaking about space exploration and he also helped design a 3d high def camera for nasa for them to take on future mars missions yeah maybe that was the same one from the uh the rover and uh he's also a member of the mars society which is like a non-profit organization that yeah is lobbying for the colonization of mars i assume he thinks we have to escape this planet at some point so he's like he's probably right <laughs> he's like <laughs> just trying to just trying to get my house over Pla there just planning ahead yeah all right so moving on back down to earth i guess uh, so we mentioned on a uh, on a previous episode of this series that i think maybe on our titanic one of our titanic episodes maybe uh cameron 
like to keep, he's always like to keep kind of a running list of ideas on his computer. You know, he might meet, read an article or he might meet a person that kind of inspires him and he'll, you know, sketch out some possible scenarios. Some of these scenarios are a few words long. Some of them might be a page or two, kind of a description of character and plot, things like that. Well, one of those ideas on, on his list that dated back to the 90s was a two-word phrase. That's all it was. It's an experimental girl, which is not going to be what you think it is. I mean, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> Cameron had been looking for a project to do with his buddy, Charles L. Uh, Egley. I think that's how you say his name. Or Chick. I think it's Chick Egley is his is what he goes by. Well, Egley and Cameron, their, their friendship had gone back to the Corman days. Egley had actually written Piranha 2, and they had bonded over, I guess, the trauma of that project. Uh, but he goes on to become a television producer, working on shows like NYPD Blue, Murder One, like pretty successful guy. Well, around the same time, 20th Century Fox was urging Cameron to try his hand at creating a television show. And Ray Sanchini, who's the president of Lightstorm, uh, kind of encouraged him to give it a shot. She thinks that it's going to, you know, it let him be creative with, I guess, lower stakes than doing like a, you know, $200 million movie. Mm. So Cameron and Egley, they set their own production company for the sole purpose of producing producing a television show. Um, they, they gave it the very clever title of Cameron Egley Productions. <laughs> and they started working on possible scenarios for a TV show, eventually settling on Cameron's experimental girl idea, which would later be given the title Dark Angel, which is not the Dolph Lundgren movie, unfortunately. Uh, I tried to look it up and ran across that one. So that's <laughs> disappointing. I believe it's streaming on Shudder right now if you want to watch it. Uh, Perfect. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that Cameron loved about this too, by the way, was just that it allowed him to keep his uh, creative fiction writing and producing going too. It exercises that muscle because uh, there was a plan involved with this, especially when his uh, miniseries idea hit him to like try to break into TV and see if he can uh, do some stuff there. But in this all this space stuff, I mean, the one thing is, is like you know how interested he is in into like traveling into the actual environments, but you can't do that in space. Like, uh, um, you, it's all got to be like documentary style if you're going to do anything. You in a space station, you got like three people, and two of them need to be astronauts or something. Right? So, yeah. right. <laughs> it's a little difficult. Yeah, so it's like he's going to be up there. He's just going to be shooting stuff from an artistic perspective uh, because astronauts aren't trained to shoot stuff artistically. He says they're like. Uh, maybe programmed to think the exact opposite way. So uh, anyway, there's this balancing act and he can't, uh, while he's doing the space stuff, he can't also be uh, working on his fiction stuff and, and lining up shots every day. Uh, but this gives him like kind of the balance he's trying to find of like sending creative stuff in and learning to compromise with other creative uh, people. Uh, and if if you're wondering, by the way, how he gets all of this shit done, um, like in one interview where he's talking about a little bit about this, he says, uh, it's madness. Plus, I have a new baby at home. It's a juggling act. And the key is to have good teams on each one of these activities that are self-sufficient. When I'm not there, you can mesh with me creatively. Uh, and uh, they need to know how to reach out and get what it is they need at the right time in the right way. I have video teleconference capability at my house and at my offices. So I spend a lot of time video teleconferencing, which is almost like being there, but it's much more effective in terms of time management. Uh, and this is all an issue of time management, which is a curse when you are interested in so many things like I am. You only have only so much time on this planet, though. So you got to make it count. Might as well spend, 
you know, a decade and a half between movies. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, this show, Dark Angel, is set in a dystopian future in the apocalyptic year of 2019. They were just off by one year, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> terrorists, in this story, terrorists have set off an electromagnetic pulse that's destroyed nearly all computers and communication systems. And the show's main character, her name's Max Guevara. Uh, she's a genetically engineered uh, or a genetically enhanced, rather, super soldier who escapes from a covert military facility as a child. Uh, and Max, uh, she's an, another in a long line of strong female characters in Cameron's work and was actually greatly inspired by the manga Battle Angel Alita. So over a thousand actresses were considered for the part of Max, but the role would end up going to Jessica Alba. Oh, uh, Alba yeah, it was. <laughs> Alba was not very well known at the time. She'd done a few parts here and there, uh, but she'd been acting since she was about 13. I think she was 18 when she got cast in Dark Angel. And she was uh, she had kind of found that her exotic looks, she's... Um, Gosh, she's part like I think part Dutch, part Hispanic. She's she's a, a melting pot, you know, and she looks very exotic. And but that had kind of prevented her from getting lead parts in a lot of movies, the kind of stuff that she was going for. And she was actually on the verge of giving up acting if she didn't land the part in Dark Angel. But uh, bless Jessica Alba, though. Yeah, <laughs> and and uh, Cameron actually he didn't like her audition at first, but there was like something about her that he liked some she had like an energy that he liked and he actually thought her exotic looks like were beneficial to the show because he kind of saw he kind of saw and sees the future as being biracial did he see idle hands that came out in like 99 i think because <laughs> i saw that one and she answers the door in her underwear and ever since then i've been in love so <laughs> it, 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 by the way i was the same age as her and hey, am the I, same age as her so you, you, you might know, be a year younger so i might be like a little younger than yeah. her and i know it sounds creepy i saw like uh uh craig in our discord mention the she hulk thing like yeah. some people are appreciating a strong empowered woman and i'm in it for the because i want a muscle mommy but uh <laughs> <laughs> the uh no, I, I I I can appreciate all things. I'm multifaceted. You are, way. yeah. <laughs> you you are Legion. <laughs> the two-hour pilot for Dark Angel, which was written by Cameron and Egley, but directed by TV veteran David Nutter. David Nutter is um uh one of the most prolific TV directors out there. He's done tons of episodes of like Game of Thrones. Uh, but I I like to know, I like to think of him as uh something I'm sure that he is happy to be known for which is the director of trancers four and five mm. uh, <laughs> i was just, todd I mean, is any i can't do all of these so if you want to jump in on the david nutter okay thank part. you <clears throat> i'm something of a nutter myself <laughs> <laughs> well this this two-hour pilot was a 10 million dollar production which by TV show standards is pretty extravagant. It's about double what was average for a TV pilot at the time, um, but pretty small potatoes compared to most things that James Cameron had done up to this point, mm -hmm. everything after the Terminator, at least. Uh, and unlike other Cameron production, it, it actually came in on time and on budget. Nice. And the show debuted in October of 2000 to great reviews and uh, a pretty considerable audience, thanks in part to its lead-in. It was it actually came on right after that 70s show, which was a big hit at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as as often happens in TV programming, you know, you schedule a new show after a hit, and then the audience just leaves the channel on. And and so 
Dark Angel did pretty well, but its audience dropped thanks to Fox's schedule shuffling. You know, they, they, Fox always does this fucking shit. Yeah. Uh, and it ended up being on like that Friday night death slot, you know. Fuck like, you, Fox. <laughs> Justin hates you. Yeah, I, I blame, I blame. What's his name? What's the guy's name that owns Fox? Oh, like Rupert Murdoch? Rupert or... Murdoch. Yeah. yeah. Fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, though, fuck that guy. <laughs> But, uh, so he the, brought you Dark Angel. For he brought sake. he brought us Dark Angel and and technically Titanic uh, and X Men One and Two, which you know well, maybe the MCU doesn't exist without them. So, oh well, yeah, okay. Well, you know, anyway, timelines. Let's fucky. not let's not give, give Rupert Murdoch too much credit there. <laughs> he also brought you Donald he also, Trump. He also gave us <laughs> Tucker Carlson and <laughs> well. So Dark Angel ends up getting canceled after its second season because Fox fucked it up. And then it was actually replaced by Firefly, Joss Whedon's Firefly, which they canceled after one season. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Cameron says, so that was my 10-minute adventure in a network TV land, which was despicable. So no more TV shows for James Cameron. He's done with it. He said uh, what happened was, is like they, get, they got finished with the second season. He said they called us on Saturday and told us we were on the schedule. We'd been picked up. We got together Saturday for season night. three. For season three. Yeah. He said, we got together Saturday night. We all celebrated. Sunday goes by. Monday morning, we get a call saying, never mind, you're not on the schedule. It's been changed. Yeah, I've, never, I've never heard of that. Uh, but then I'd never been around television. Uh, we were supposed to be on a plane Monday to go to the network up front in New York on Tuesday. They called us on Monday and told us not to go. I was so pissed. That's rude. Honestly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and and you know, you can find synopses of what season three and going forward was going to be like, and it sounded like it was going to be really cool. And I think there were even a couple of Dark Angel novels written that continued the story after the show. I mean, um, not to give the guy too much credit, but it seems like he was already on that, uh, on the verge of doing those things where, like, you know, this was that period before. You know, I don't know when the exact TV show was, not to get on a tangent about this, but, you know, where, like, episodic TV became more, like, serialized, like, storytelling, you know, like, yeah. that, that a whole season is a thing, but... Uh, like around yeah. two th probably around uh, 2004? Yeah, yeah like, when Lost... I was going to say, like, <laughs> yeah. Lost is probably the one. Lost, Lost was the big one. I mean, it had been done a little bit before that. Alias did it to an extent, which is also J.J. Abrams. Uh, and the X-Files had done it periodically you know like there were monster of the week episodes and there were the episodes that were kind of the overall arc but there were more monster of the week so it had been toyed around but not like a whole kind of season arc which is and, kind of what dark angel did well, well i was gonna say like so uh, i you know i admittedly i i did not actually watch dark angel as much as i profess my love for jessica alba but um the way he described it in this one interview i was reading where i got that quote from was that he was saying that they had told one story basically over season one and they had told like another story over season two, but by season three, they were going to kind of try to incorporate both that like this had been part of a larger story arc that was happening right. and mm. that kind of thing, which I thought was interesting. It seemed like he had that idea that was like, okay, well we could stick people in, you know, if they'll stick with us for a few seasons, we'll like make this all count as one large story. And yeah, uh, which is something that will play out, you know, but at the time was, you know pretty pretty prop, innovative props yeah. to him for so, doing that too sounds like something they did on star trek enterprise um well <laughs> a not, little bit mm, okay mm, well, i mean we'll see fuck you guys <laughs> <laughs>
I don't. I, I'm just. I, you know. I don't know. I. I uh, well, you know what? You, the way you can know that for sure is by listening to the Computer Resume podcast. There you go. Nice. Good save, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> well, after having delayed it a year earlier, in May of 2002, Cameron embarked on an, an expedition back to the Bismarck to film a special for the Discovery Channel. So the Bismarck, if you don't know, is a uh, fairly famous uh, World War II, if, if you're into like history stuff, I guess fairly famous. Just not something people talk about in regular conversation probably. But the Bismarck was a World War II era German battleship that had been sunk off the coast of France while trying to escape from the Royal Navy. It was you considered pointed like, out to me like why I never got dates at high school. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's how I always led with conversations. Yeah. Have you heard about the Bismarck? <laughs> Did you know about that? Well, I mean, this was considered like the most advanced warship ever created, much like the Titanic was kind of touted as the, you know, the most this unsinkable, most advanced ship of its time. So was the Bismarck, only it was a battleship, not a luxury liner. And when it was sunk, 90% of the ship's crew, which was about 1,995 men with an average age of about 20 years old, all went down with the Nazi superweapon. The wreckage was first discovered in 1989 by Dr. Robert Ballard. He's the guy who had discovered the Titanic's wreckage a few years earlier and had filmed that documentary whose footage actually inspired James Cameron's own Titanic expeditions. We talked about that a little bit on our Titanic episodes. Uh, so Cameron brought along, like he did on his Titanic expedition, a group of historians. He also brought along two German survivors of the battle and uh, there had actually been some controversy as to how the Bismarck actually sank. So during the war, the ship destroyed the hood. The hood was one of Britain's best ships. It was kind of the crown jewel of the Royal Navy. And it killed all but three of the 1,400 plus men aboard that ship. And by the way, this is right after the Bismarck. The Bismarck has, has it left port like seven days ago or something, right? It is, this is on its first voyage out. It was built in secret. It's going out. First first trip out, destroys the hood. Uh, it becomes this big rallying cry, sink the Bismarck, that, that you know Winston Churchill and, and England are using this as like motivation for the English people in the war. So a few days later, the story goes, the British Royal Navy gave the ship a pounding. You know, they got in a, a firefight, and it ended up sinking the Bismarck, sending it three, lot, three miles below the surface of the Atlantic. But some of the German survivors claimed that it wasn't the Brits, but the Germans themselves who actually sank the ship. Uh, it, it, it was certainly wounded and uh, what they what some of the uh, researchers in the film call tortured by the British, but wasn't actually sunk because it was essentially an unsinkable ship. But uh, they didn't want it to be boarded by the Allies, so the Germans sunk it themselves. So that's the other side of the story. Well, Cameron, using his ROVs, is able to get images of parts of the ship that had not been seen since it sank in the 1940s. And he's able to put forth theories on exactly what happened to the ship. Uh, he noted that the the that none of the torpedoes or shells had penetrated the second layer of Bismarck's inner hull and that the British torpedoes hadn't actually caused any significant flooding on it. Uh, according to his findings, the wounded ship would have sunk even without being deliberately scuttled, but it would have taken much, much longer, enough time for many of its sailors to be rescued. Uh, that theory was pretty controversial with British historians who were, you know, on the uh, proud side, let's say. Uh, but scientists who specialize in maritime forensics agreed with his findings on it. Well, did you either of you have a chance to watch this documentary? No. 
Expedition Bismarck. It's yeah, kinda, I did. It, it, yep. It's on YouTube, so it's pretty easy to find. Um, pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I mean, it definitely feels like a made-for-the-Discovery Channel documentary in some ways. Some of the CGI is a little, you know, Discovery Channel-esque, <laughs> you know, but very, very interesting. And, and the way that he treats the German survivors in it is really cool because, you know, it's really easy to look at these guys and go, oh, yeah, you were Nazis, but <laughs> they were 18 years old when they were on the board of the ship. They had they were 10 years old when Hitler came into power. So they grew up being taught propaganda. Mm. You know, they were kids. That's a uh, forgiving way of looking way of looking at things that a lot of uh society yeah. doesn't agree with sometimes. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, these guys were not out there. They weren't manning the the fucking, you know, ovens and things in the gas chambers and stuff. These guys were doing a job aboard a ship and they were, they were on the wrong side and they will 100% fully admit it. They do so in the documentary. Uh, but they, they were like, we were kids and we didn't know we didn't know what we were doing. We were, we know that we, now we know that we were on the wrong side of history, but at the time we were just dumb kids who didn't, who were taught the wrong thing growing up. So it's, it's kind of neat. I, I was actually going into it. I was like, knowing he, I, I went into watching it, knowing that he had, some German survivors in it. I was like, Oh, those are like, those are Nazis, right? <laughs> like we're going to, we're just going to hang out with them for a couple of hours, but it's, it's treated very well. I think the way that he does it. Uh, Shad uh, gave it two stars on Letterboxd and said, well, it's definitely a discovery channel documentary from 2002. Enjoyed the montage of Hitler rallies set to generic heavy guitar riffs to convey the, the guitar idea. riffs are weird. <laughs> <laughs> he says it helps convey the idea that Hitler had 1930s Germany under his sway like a rock star and made us feel a little less icky about James Cameron spending so much time with 80 year old Nazis who served on the Bismarck. Pretty messed up that this is the last time Cameron worked with Lance Henderson, who only narrates and doesn't get to join the expedition like Bill Paxton did in Ghost of the Abyss. For the love of God, Jim, put the man in Avatar. I mean, honestly, after watching it, I think Lance Henderson should be the go-to narrator for everything. Sorry, Morgan Freeman, but <laughs> uh, but I think I think Lance Henderson deserves that gig. It's he's it's really great. It's really good. Uh, I the documentary have pretty a. Good. I, I, I did have a second review here for B who gave it two stars. Who says I spent 49 cents to rent this and complete my James Cameron filmography. I got my money's worth. <laughs> uh, well, but it, the important thing with James Cameron, I think here is to like, uh, he, he one around this time too, again, and another quote from James Cameron, he says that the wrecks are interesting in and of themselves as objects, as pieces of engineering, but ultimately they're a doorway into another time. I think of the submersible when we're doing this wreck diving as a time machine. Above all, he says, you know, I think of the science of it. He says, I just want to be a cheerleader for legitimate scientific exploration. I think that's a necessity as a filmmaker to get the message out, whether it's exploration, conservation, respect for organisms and ecosystems. I'm driven by curiosity. I want to know how everything works from the big bang and onwards, there are still huge areas of curiosity to fill when you've got a great story, whether it's a feature or a documentary, you got to pursue it. Yeah. And, and the documentary was really well received when it aired in December of 2002, it did well for the discovery channel and uh, Cameron followed it up with a couple of other controversial documentaries uh, that he produced. He didn't direct these, but he produced them. The first one of those was called the Exodus decoded, 
which was produced for the History Channel. Uh, the Exodus Decoded spec speculates that the plagues of Egypt, as described in the Bible, could be explained naturalistically as opposed to being acts of God. Um, I watched this. It is incredibly interesting. Uh, I it, Some of it comes across as a little conspiracy theorist, you know, but it is... Basically, they explain a lot of the what, what are described as the plagues of Exodus um, as being caused by earthquakes and a, and a massive volcano eruption. And they make a pretty good, compelling, scientifically backed case for it. It's really interesting, I think. Uh, that was directed by a guy named Simcha Jakobovich, who is this uh, Jewish-Canadian investigative journalist. He's a really interesting dude. And uh, the next documentary that Cameron produced was another one of uh, Simcha Jacobovich's documentaries, and it's called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. Uh, that one claimed that Jesus's tomb may have been found in Jerusalem in 1980 during an apartment construction project. And the documentary challenges the idea of the resurrection as an actual physical act and suggests that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were buried together as husband and wife and that they had a son. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, that both of these documentaries were met with considerable controversy from the church because uh, uh, Christians, uh, you may not know, but Christians are not super chill about this kind of stuff. Uh, but they're both worth checking out. They're both incredibly interesting. Uh, I watched them both on Tubi for free. So if, if you're interested, I mean, they, they definitely feel like History Channel documentaries, you know what I mean? But the subject matter is really fascinating to me, I think. And this Simcha Jakobovich guy is an interesting guy. And, uh, Cameron ends up doing a documentary with him way on down the line, like after Avatar, about looking for the lost city of Atlantis, uh, which I have not watched yet. I plan to, but I haven't checked that one out yet because it wasn't relevant to like this timeline. But I do want to check it out because I like what they've done together. I think it's really neat. Well, for the record, uh, Justin and I differ somewhat some sometimes on things going all the way back to our Passion of the Christ episode. But I will say that not all Christians are super strict on this. And uh, the... You know, so I can accept that like sometimes there maybe there's some like scientific event that happened and maybe that's how you explain something. But um, the the thing with an interview with uh, Cameron about Simcha on uh, Exodus Decoded is uh, this is this is really interesting to me because I feel like it, it kind of bounce, it butts heads with literally like the stuff we just talked about because uh, he says uh, Simcha is brilliant finding new evidence and making cognitive leaps that so-called experts aren't allowed to connecting the dots, seeing a pattern and disparate pieces of informa information, evidence and lateral thinking are all the more the province of the filmmaker. Here we found evidence that may set Exodus clock, the Exodus clock back 200 years. We can shove this film in the experts faces and start a dialogue. History is often told by the victors. It is edited by subsequent rulers who chisel away at it to show themselves in a better light. History is a moving target and we should not be afraid to be provocative about it. On one hand, I get what he's saying there. Like, yeah, you got to be able to interpret this differently, but it's also funny because he's like, he's got some stuff that may or may not be true, but it could be true. So we should really <laughs> like promote it. I mean, but he does make a compelling case for it and there is science behind it, but none of this stuff is provable. Well, I, I mean, mean, the thing on, is, on, is on any, don't get me yeah. wrong. I'm saying you're, you're talking about all the plagues of Egypt. I mean, I'm like, well, that, you know, it would be cooler to have like a scientific explanation. Of right. Than, yeah. Yeah. Than <laughs> it just randomly happening by, you know, that some, God actually you know, turned the water into actual blood. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, contagious, 
uh, writes uh, Half Star on this one. Hallelujah, I've never seen someone manipulate evidence and misinterpret historical tablets to fit their narrative before. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and and on, on the, uh, the Exodus Decoded, I should say that Cameron does appear in it in addition to producing it. He's like kind of a secondary nar narrator because Simcha is really kind of the primary narrator, but Cameron pops up now and then to say like, this is where we're at in the timeline. And, you know, but yeah, you know, so he is, is actually on screen in it. Yeah. And, and some of this stuff in uh, the lost tomb of Jesus is actually like, it, it's interesting because uh, if you look at the Quran, um, there's stuff in there that could line up there because, you know, in, uh, you know, not to pretend to be an expert on, on Islam, but uh you know, Jesus is a messenger in there, but the, the story for Jesus there was that he wasn't even actually the guy who's killed, apparently. Like, it's like it was another person killed in the place of Jesus, and Jesus was sent off on his own, like Da Vinci Code style or something. Yeah, and I mean, a lot that, of what's in the Lost Tomb of Jesus, the whole Mary Magdalene thing, that's all very Da Vinci Code, -y, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, but yeah, and, and in some stories there, I think the theory was like, even like Judas is the guy, like mm. somehow his face was changed to look more like Jesus and then they Ooh, crucified ancient, him instead. A little bit of ancient plastic surgery, huh? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I don't know. It's all very interesting to me. I mean, like like you guys, I grew up in a very religious family and, and this mm -hmm. was all a lot of the, these things in the Bible were taught as if they were historical fact, which uh, when when you look back on it with as a 40 year old, you're like, oh, wait, what? Like I, adults were teaching me that this was like a thing that actually happened. This isn't a metaphor. This is like an actual historical event. And so, so you know, we know now that a lot of this stuff was rewritten. There were multiple versions of the Bible throughout the years where things were edited in and out. There were entire books of the Bible that were done away with because they didn't fit what the church wanted and wanted their narrative to be. So it's all up in the air, but th these documentaries make a compelling case. And I, I don't know if it's true or not. I, like I said, it's really not provable, but it's interesting. Yeah. I, 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 I grew up in the church a little bit different than the evangelical church, but, uh, I definitely had that same thing where it's like all of this is like strictly fact. And it's just interesting to me to always see like, well, where could this have come from and right. how much is, is dead on and how much like is what, not. what physical event, like actual event happened that got interpreted as a, uh, a, super, a, a supernatural event. Right, yeah. Right. And that's basically, especially the Exodus one. That's really what that's about. Like how can we explain locusts and the blood turning red and all this other stuff. And, you know, he does a pretty good job of of presenting you with possibilities. Mm -hmm. I will say, Denim Dynamo on the Lost Tomb of Jesus gave it two stars and said another fantastic production from James Cameron and the scholar filmmaker with the aggressive hat. It is an aggressive hat. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So at this point in his career, Cameron considered himself kind of more of an explorer than a filmmaker. He was constantly in pursuit of projects where he was going to learn something, where his curiosity is going to be satisfied. That's what he's looking for. Between 2001 and 2004, he spent seven months at sea and went on 41 deep submersible dives. So this exploration and the satisfaction he was getting from them, uh, this began to change his way of thinking. Previously, he'd said, uh, and this is a quote from him, everything had to be about the film do whatever, sacrifice whatever, move to England, give up your salary, whatever it takes to make the film, put on the show. But these expeditions, when he was going on these, he started to kind of feel like the, the film itself wasn't as important as the moments that he was living, which I think is something that probably comes with 
age and perspective, you know, mm-hmm. especially maybe mm-hmm. having a family and stuff probably uh, had something to do with that. Oh, for sure. But his notion of leadership began to change as well. On these expeditions, he was literally responsible for people's lives. You know, like he was responsible for people's safety on Titanic, but like he was the, like, he was the guy, like if he made a wrong decision, people could, people could die <laughs> on these expeditions. Yeah, uh, And he also saw that his management style, his previous management style could probably use a little bit of finessing. And he would later say, you learn to deal with people from a place of respect before you open your mouth. If there's an assumption that you respect that person, you're going to deal with them differently, which I think is a fantastic way to approach just about any conversation. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah, it's a good idea. And, and it even goes to like uh, the stuff with the, that we're going to, I mean, run across the next episode mostly, but um, he even talks about like some of his comments on like CGI and like everything being able to be done with computers. He, he straight up says like, or some of these things, like even up to today, like you can't replace actors. You have to respect the ability of actors and, mm-hmm. you know, you can change how they're, how they look like he's like, we can eventually get to the point that he's like, they're going to have to learn to be different things than humans. Sometimes I think this was literally right before avatar. He was saying, you know, like they're, they're going to have to learn how to be something else, but it's still going to take real actors underneath whatever we can do to them. Mm. Right. Well, after his expedition to the Bismarck, Cameron went so far as to purchase his own submarines that's how committed to exploration he is. Nice. Uh, and to, in 2003, he filmed yet another underwater documentary. This one's called Aliens of the Deep. Uh, in that documentary, Cameron teamed up with NASA and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to investigate the ocean's hypothermal vents, which is a unique part of the ocean where organisms don't require sunlight to live, instead deriving their energy from the heat coming from those vents. Uh, and in this documentary, Cameron's accompanied by astrobiologists uh, and posits a theory that the vents provide an idea of what life on other planets could look like. Uh, and like Ghost of the Abyss had been, it was shot and released in the IMAX 3D format. Uh, did you guys have a chance to watch this one? This one I did watch. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's pretty. It's honestly really fascinating. <laughs> there's some fascinating footage, of, yeah. like the footage of the of. Uh, uh, the underwater life and stuff is really cool. I think it's a little cheesy when it gets to the, uh, the space stuff at the end, which I mean, is clearly yeah, sort of um, inspired by the abyss. Hence, sure. You know, but yeah, <laughs> but it's a little hokey, but I see what he's trying to do. You know yeah. what I mean? And I think it's an yeah. overall pretty interesting documentary. Um, and that strange kind of bioluminescent flora and fauna that he saw yeah. during this expedition would greatly influence the creature and plant design on the next movie. He's going oh, to very make. much. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, you watch this knowing what avatar looks like and you're like, Oh, it's a, it's a very clear oh, inspiration. It, oh, clearly he got, yeah, <laughs> clearly he was inspired by this stuff he found yeah. on the bottom of the ocean. And it was like, and even some of the like real science of it, I, you know, cause you see these, okay, it's volcanic and it's shooting forth, you know, some heat and a little bit of black smoke, but you don't think much about it. And then they're like, no, that's, we have to be careful about how close we get to this. It'll melt the sub. Like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. I believe you, uh, engineer from NASA. It's so nobody wild. felt like a consumer who gave it one star and said, like many others, I expected to have a front row seat for a 90 minute tour of the deep. Instead, I got patronizing self-centered tours of the team who did the dive with maybe 10 to 15 minutes of actual life 
added just to keep us hoping for something. Add to that the assumptions about life on other planets and science fiction at the end. I have to say this was a waste of time and money. Has that person never watched a documentary before? Uh, <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's disappointing for some people. I mean, there was another person on there that said, I thought this DVD was going to show awesome creatures deep within the ocean. All they show is like three creatures and everything else is people talking about the experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but those three creatures look really cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> it, does, it is it is cool and it, it's another one that i would have liked to have seen you know in in imax i think that would have been really cool yeah i think uh, so too that would have been cool well by 2005 cameron had spent seven years of his life devoted to discovering new places and new technologies so this age from about you know the age of like 43 to 50 uh, these are generally some of the most productive years for a film director, and he decided to just, you know, forego <laughs> working yeah. in, in in narrative film for for that time. He could have made multiple other movies during that time if he wanted to. He could have mm -hmm. made Spider Man. Could have made Spider Man. He could have made uh, Planet of the Apes or whatever else he was offered at the time. You know, <laughs> I did find uh, if you're wondering a quote. Uh, if you weren't wondering, I've got it anyway. Uh, that James Cameron said about Spider Man when Sam Raimi. Uh, uh, was hired on to do that movie. He said, uh, quote, good God, Sam Raimi is a cool director. When I heard he was doing it, I thought, perfect choice. I think they used my script as a jumping off point, and I wasn't involved in the process. You know, every film has its own life. Sam actually hewed it closer back to the comic, which was probably wise for the fans. Mine was going to be way more satiric. Huh. I, I really want to read his whole script for spider-man i'd be interested in yeah that'd be cool that. yeah yeah so after all this this period of exploration uh he was now ready to use all of what he'd learned about life and technology and science back to hollywood where he would embark on the filming of his most ambitious and groundbreaking film yet uh and one that uh, like titanic i feel like with time people have like they, they feel like they need to shit on it for absolutely no reason so we'll see how we feel actually i already know how i feel about it i've already watched it but uh i haven't watched the other two versions of it yet though oh, <laughs> and that film the subject of our next episode is of course the final episode of our james cameron series from 2009 we're going to be talking about avatar Yay. and don't worry because i mean after avatar he's going to be putting out like two at a time so it's going to be we'll get you a whole nother james cameron <laughs> we'll, get whole, we'll get a whole nother series down the line and it's only going to be avatar movies oh that's <laughs> it well that's it for this show guys thank you for indulging us in this kind of different episode than what we normally do uh but like we said uh earlier in the episode i think that this is all stuff that's really relevant to his growth as a filmmaker and I think is relevant to what he's going to do on Avatar. So this sort of is, you know, while, while none of this is directly connected to Avatar, it feeds into his creative process on that mm -hmm. film, I think. So I think it was important to talk about and, you know, it is part of his story and that's kind of what we're telling here. So uh, we appreciate y'all listening to this and, and kind of indulging us in this. Yeah. Well, anyway, fellas, where can you be found on the internet? I don't like to self-promote. <laughs> <laughs> I am at this is Gary Horn on all the social medias. I also do stuff with the NWA at NWA. The wrestling podcast is at TIPW show. And... I also do a podcast called Cinema Shock at Cinema oh. underscore shock. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, if Star Trek is your thing, uh, check out Computer Resume Podcast, where we are covering the entire franchise in chronological order. Uh, you can find that on uh, all your major podcatchers and on the, all the socials at Computer Resume. You can find me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond. I don't even believe you use D&D Beyond. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can believe that, Gary. I'm going to look it up. All right. After our last episode, I looked up your letterboxed and your last update was two years ago. <laughs> yeah. So, so Todd is continuing to promote his letterboxed. Yeah. That he has not updated in two yeah. years. <laughs> well, I'm on D and D beyond right now. And I just searched Todd Davis and I didn't find anything. Todd <laughs> a. Davis. M R Todd a Davis. But your la- your last letterbox was like a I think it was a Toby Hooper film from like like one of our very probably first when we series. yeah probably from when we were talking about Toby Hooper. <laughs> but you know, but anyway, to our listeners, please go follow Todd on Letterbox if you want. <laughs> I don't know, dude. Yeah, I yeah. just searched Mister Todd A. Davis. It says, "Looks like we filled our investigation. Cast <laughs> guidance on us by refining your search. We'll try again." Wow. Well, anyway, I'm Justin underscore Bishop, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where I am very active, as is Gary. Thanks, Gary. You're doing great on Letterboxd, by the way. I'm at least, like, documenting every movie. At least logging them. Yeah, yeah. That's what I do. And you can find the podcast at cinema underscore shock, uh, where you can find links to every episode. You can listen to every episode. You can browse episodes by series where they're grouped together. You can find links to our merch, links to our Discord, everything. So your one-stop shop for all things cinema shock until next week may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other pick up a camera shoot something no matter how small no matter how cheesy no matter whether your friends or your sister star in it put your name on it as director now you're a director everything after that you're just negotiating your budget and your fee and johnny has the keys you were just quoting James Cameron and then yeah, adding I, I didn't know what to do. I was just like, I'll just quote James Cameron quote. <laughs> I like it. I, I'm with it. <laughs>